and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Derek Thompson is an author, he's a writer, he's a speaker, he's a podcaster, he wears a lot of hats, and his interests are varied. It varies from economics, to the media, to politics, to sports, to business, He is someone who definitely has range when it comes to his ability to write, to cover, to research, and to think about today's most pressing and interesting topics. And interesting is the word I would use to describe Derek. He's interested in a multitude of things. He has a background in theater. He's going to talk about his dad in today's conversation, and he'll speak about his passion for wine. Derek calls himself not necessarily an expert. So he's definitely a jack of all trades. But I think one of the beauties of Derek is he is an expert. He dives deep into whatever he's focused on and whatever topic he's writing about. And I think that's going to come through in today's conversation. 
He's a regular contributor for NPR's Here and Now. He has his own podcast with The Ringer called Plain English. And he has an amazing book called Hitmakers, which I highly recommend you check out if you're interested at all in how to succeed in an age of distraction. So this conversation is wide ranging. It's the type of conversation that I felt like could go on for hours. I think you're going to really enjoy Derek. He is very human in the way he approaches things, but he is brilliant with words. So here is Derek Thompson. Derek, thanks for coming on the podcast. When I asked you, hey, where do you want to start today? You said, you know, know, I'm kind of like all over the place as far as what I like to focus on. And I think about the reason why we're talking and it's because of David Epstein, uh, who we are both friends of and then uh, invited you to an event that we were part of. And so I figured let's start there with with David's favorite phrase or, or term range. And when I think about you and actually when I think about myself, I've always enjoyed playing in multiple sandboxes, but you clearly do politics, sports, tech, music. You got to my house and you started talking about wine and whiskey. Um, does your range ever hurt you? Does it ever get in the way uh, for you? That is a wonderful opening question. Yeah, of course it gets in the way. I think there are benefits to specialization. If I think there are certain ways in which my job and my career would be easier if all I did was write and think about the psychology of work, or all I did was just try to build sources in the political community and be the try to be the best Senate or congressional reporter in Washington, D.C. The truth is that I range widely, to steal from our friend David, not just because I think it's good for my writing, but because I sort of can't help it. I have always been interested in so many things. Whenever I you know, got the Washington Post when I lived in Washington, D.C., from McLean, Virginia, I grew up in McLean, Virginia. I get the Washington Post. I was interested in the A section, just news from the U.S. and around the world. I was interested in sports. I was really interested as a young actor and singer in the style section. In fact, the only section of the newspaper that I regularly threw away was the business section. But then I got hired by the Atlantic to be an economics reporter. So I, I'm, a, I'm a full, I'm an every section of the newspaper kind of guy. That's just where my interests naturally fall. And I got really lucky in getting my first job at a company, the Atlantic, that really allowed me to parachute into whatever topic I wanted with the understanding or hope that as I built a little bit of expertise across a lot of different domains, I could hybridize those expertises. So I could write about you know, how the remote work revolution is affecting the housing market. Um, I could write about how the remote work revolution was affecting the psychology of work because I was into sociology and psychology and economics. So I'm really happy with the way that my utterly unfocused interests have helped me professionally. But the truth is I don't actually recommend that to most people. I think I got kind of lucky in finding a kitchen that really wanted to bring together a bunch of different ingredients at the Atlanta. What do you recommend? I'm sure people come to you and say, hey, Derek, I love your podcast, or I read your book, or I read your articles on the Atlantic, et cetera, et cetera. What, what are you saying to them if they're saying, yeah, I've got you know these different interests, but I'm not sure what direction to go in? I tell them to specialize. I tell them to specialize, but to specialize at the intersection of specialties. So I don't think it sets a person apart to say, I am really interested in electoral politics. I'm just interested in who wins various elections and how campaigns go. Okay, now you're one of 1 million. You might be one of 500 million. That's not very distinguishing. But if you're 
really, really interested in the intersection between maybe voter psychology and midterm elections, well, wow, now you're maybe like one of 20, you know, maybe you're one of 10 if you're really good at writing about that. And so I encourage people to, yes, have a really broad range of interests that they, that they explore, but then also to exploit. And there's this concept in economics and sociology that David's written a little bit about and I've written about called the explore exploit sequence, which says that a lot of hot streaks in people's careers, whether they are scientists or artists, musicians, maybe writers, happens when they explore a bunch of ideas or skills, domains, and they find a vertical that works really, really well for them. They find fit with it. And for whatever reason, the feedback of the audience feedback is really fantastic. And then you want to exploit that narrow domain. You really want to dig deep into it. Um, so I encourage people to uh, explore exploit with the emphasis on that are specialized in something that's really particular. Because the truth is that journalism, media, being a media maker, it is such a crowded industry that it's helpful to have some little twist, I think, that sets you apart. I'm thinking for myself, and a lot of times I have these conversations for selfish reasons. I think I explored sports for a long time. I went to grad school for sports psychology. And then I've exploited it to a certain extent. Uh, a lot of my executive clients, which is where I spend most of my time every day, have backgrounds in sports, whether they played Division One or they played in high school or they're connected to a sports organization. But for you, as if you think about that explore and exploit, where do you take it for where you are now and perhaps where you're going? Yeah, so let's talk about sort of two different verticals that I exploited. I started as a macroeconomic writer with The Atlantic when I was 23 years old. This was during the end of the Great Recession. So there was a lot of macroeconomic news to report on. After hey, Derek, a few years- Derek, can you pause there for me? This is where I, we're different because when I graduated from college, I majored in sociology. I minored in African-American studies. I then went, got into psychology. For me, I've realized looking back that I was always curious about human beings. And so anything that involved humans, whether it's sociology or psychology or African-American studies to a certain extent, I was interested in learning about humans. Unfortunately, our academic system, there's only so much you can do when it comes to humans. You also have to talk about math and science and all these other elements. And that that actually got in the way for me academically. I struggled whenever there wasn't an opportunity to be curious about a human. I wasn't all that interested. But for you, as you're thinking about business and economics, what at 23 allowed you to be curious about that? Because all these other areas I get, music, theater, sport, those to me as someone who's interested in people, like, yeah, I'm in. But there's this other side of you that was interested in something different. Can you just uh, pull on that for me a little bit? Sure. That's a wonderful question. So um, my wife and I sometimes talk about the fact that there are, you can over simply divide the world into people, people, and things, people. Some people are more interested in people. They like gossip. They like individual stories. They like learning about the world by reading biographies. And then other people are things, people. They like big idea books. They like talking about ideas in the news. Uh, they like these abstract concepts. I'm definitely a things person, but I'm also a things about people person, if that makes sense, just sort of scramble it. To the extent that I do like talking about people, I like talking about what makes them tick. I like talking about ideas in psychology, like the explore, exploit sequence, which is, you know, I, I could have told that story about explore, exploit 
through autobiography. I could have said, here's my life. Here's how I, here's just how I did it. Or here's how someone else did it. But I really like the philosophy of it. This idea that across lots of people, there's this, there's this concept that seems to work where if you explore a bunch of domains and then hybridize two of those domains and realize that you're really good inside of that fit and then dig deep into that, well, you can really exploit that and be sort of one of one, exploit it in a way that makes you relatively distinguished. So that's kind of the way that I, that I think about people. I, I'm just a little bit more of an abstract thinker. So I was initially not interested in economics at all. I really actually found economics to be incredibly boring. But around the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, it seemed to be the most important idea in the world. The most important idea in the world, which affected all sorts of people, seemed to be, why is employment, unemployment so high? Why isn't the economy growing? How did the great financial crisis happen? How is it having all these effects on the housing market? When is it going to end? How is it going to affect politics and culture? So everything seemed to me to flow downstream of macroeconomics in 2009. And so I was very happy to jump head, shoulders, and foot into that pool. But over time, I got bored. I got a little bit bored with macroeconomics, uh, as, as many people uh, inevitably do if they're not actual economists. And around 2012, 2013, I got really interested in taking my approach to economics, which was sort of ideas first, what are the most interesting ideas in this space, and porting it over into culture. I became really interested in why some cultural products become hits and why some cultural products fail, even when they're, they're very similar. Like, haven't you had the experience where you hear a song and you love it? And it turns out you're like the only person in the world that loves it. Like you love that song on Spotify and you go to look it up on Spotify and it's gotten like 100,000 downloads, which is not that much for Spotify. And then some other song that sounds kind of similar but isn't as catchy has like 300 million listens. How, how does that happen? I became really interested in that, in finding ideas that could explain the difference between hits and failures, hits and flops in, in, um, in cultural markets. And that was the next domain that I exploited, which ended in my book, Hitmakers, which is a, a melange of stories and ideas about why certain products succeed in pop culture and beyond. So that was another way, I guess, in which I you know, explored for a while, figured out how to write about television and movies and the music industry, and also combined that with a little bit of ideas from psychology to produce a book about, okay, why do certain cultural products succeed or fail? You said something earlier around boredom that I want to just dive into a little bit. And it sounds like boredom for you is a sign that, hey, maybe I need to look into something else that's grabbing my attention and go toward that. Your book also talks about distraction. And we live in a world today where people are distracted all the time. And I think one of the beauties of the retreat that we attended is that there was limited distraction and you could just be with nature. You could be with other humans. Then I hosted another retreat a week ago and I just talked to a client about that. He was like, yeah, I wasn't distracted when I was there. I was actually present and I was able to pay attention. But I think about my kids just started kindergarten and first grade and we went to back to school night and the principal said, it's okay for your kids to be bored. It, let them be bored. And last night my daughter was in the car and she said, she, was, she wanted my wife's phone and she's like, you know, I'm bored. And we're like, it's okay to be bored sometimes. Like that's where you find something that you're interested in. Can you talk about boredom and how boredom uh, plays a role in what you decide to look into, pivot from, how you think about that word boredom? I think boredom is a pretty interesting signal. It's an interesting signal from your mind that what you're doing right now 
what you're surrounded by, what you're thinking about, isn't fully grabbing you. And when that happens, that's a really good excuse to explore. So I get bored very easily, but I think that the fact that I get bored easily is at least partially responsible for the fact that I love to explore new ideas. And so I write about a subject, whether, whether it's housing or the psychology of self-talk, I'll write about it, I'll feel like I understand it. And then at that moment of feeling like I understand it, I start to get a little bit bored. And so this is maybe a difference between me and maybe like an academic or, or really a, a full expert. I think if you're an academic or a full expert in something, you can't really get bored inside of that vertical. You wanna go deeper, deeper, deeper. You understand more and more and more. And one of my advantages slash disadvantages as a thinker is that I get bored really easily with subjects and topics. And so I, I have a mystery that I wanna answer. I answer it to the best of my under, full understanding. And then I move on to some other topic. And if you look at sort of you know, my, um, my author page at The Atlantic, I think you can probably see that. There'll be an article about medieval sleeping habits. And there'll be an article about the new geography of American migration, where Americans are moving to. And there'll be an article about remote work. And then there's an article about unemployment. And then there's an article about you know, Russian oil policy. And you're like, what the hell is this guy doing? This is some weird potpourri of articles. And it is a weird potpourri of articles, but it's, it, it doesn't feel weird to me. It all feels in keeping with um, my frequency of getting bored, wanting to explore something, some mystery in the news or in my life, answering it to the best of my ability and then moving on. And so boredom in that way is sort of like an engine of exploration. And that's kind of how I feel. We're going to dive into this even more, but I think about the pandemic in the first year, I found that I wasn't having novel experiences. Mm. I wasn't going to a sporting event or a concert. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't going to a new restaurant. And I felt like a malaise almost for myself that I was like, gosh, I just want to go explore. And my wife and I actually then decided to get a hotel room in DC and just walk around the city a little bit just to get out of same house, same thing over and over again. <laughs> in your book, you talk about this idea that humans are wired for kind of both. Like there's this desire for familiarity, but there's also this desire for novelty. And so can you talk about that concept a little bit? Because I think it was like a core premise in your book as people are thinking about how do I stand out or how do I gain popularity or how do I make a hit? There's this line that almost exists where it has to seem familiar, but we also still crave finding something new and this desire to have a new experience. So talk about that dynamic a bit. You summarized it beautifully. In writing Hitmakers, I wanted to have some big ideas that could hold up the entire book. Big ideas about why people like what they like. And probably the biggest idea that I stumbled on is this concept of familiarity bias. I think there's a kind of myth that we live with in capitalist culture, that people naturally want new things, that we really want to watch a new movie every single weekend, that we really want to listen to new songs and shop for new clothes and find new ideas. But the truth is that if you look across markets, um, it is subtle familiarity that seems to drive popularity. 90% of the time we're listening to music. We're listening to a song that we've already heard. Every year this century, a majority of the top 10 films in America have been sequels, adaptations, and reboots. That's familiar, familiar, familiar. Um, and even when you're trying to explain people's taste, people tend to like 
variations on a theme, something that's very much like the last thing that they consumed. So we have this profound familiarity bias that's probably sown into our DNA. I mean, if you're a hunter-gatherer trawling the savannas of Africa and you see a plant or an animal and you don't recognize it, um, well, that means it could kill you. If you do recognize it, that means it hasn't killed you yet. So you should have a bias toward what's familiar. But it's also the case that in our society, we, there's something in us that wants to discover something new. And this is probably also uh, written into our DNA. I mean, we are the species that explored the entire world, that populated the entire world, that left Africa and went to every other continent. So there clearly is some element of, um, of, of mild novelty bias with us as well. And I think what's so important when you think about sort of what creates hits is designing at that intersection of familiarity and novelty, at the intersection of what I call neophobia, a fear of anything that's too new, and neophilia, a, a, a mild love to discover new things. And I call ideas that fit at that intersection that are familiar, but not so familiar, I call them familiar surprises. I think we love, for example, to watch a movie that introduces us to a totally novel world, uh, say a world like Star Wars, but the story within it is a very familiar story, a story like the hero's journey, which is the oldest story in, in, in history. I think it's those combinations of novelty and surprise, um, or excuse me, novelty and familiarity that really seem to get, grab our attention and then keep our attention. And so in many ways, the, the, the book itself is an exploration of those themes, the theme of the familiar surprise across these domains in music and movies and television. I think you hit on this book, on this, in the book, that depending on what audience you're trying to reach, some might lean one way and some might lean a different way, depending on what they value. So if I'm trying to reach like anything you mentioned, like hipsters who are trying to be counterculture, that might be different than if I'm trying to write a pop song for 15 year old girls, mm -hmm. um, that might be different. And I'm thinking about you uh, because like you, I like to interview people that I'm interested in learning from. Mm -hmm. And so this podcast goes very wide. And I didn't want it to be a niche. I didn't want it to be focused. And with my book that I wrote, the question I kept get asking is who's this for? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting. Um, and yet people in the marketing space will say, Hey, you need to know who your audience is when you're writing a book or if you're publishing a podcast, who are you trying to reach? And I've always struggled and like wrestled with that quite a bit. As you're thinking about writing another book, how do you think about what you've learned from your past book and applying it to your content, even beyond the book, articles, podcasts? Like, are you applying what you learn in Hitmakers or are you still just going toward things that you're interested in? How do you make sense of all of that? Well, one thing I would definitely say about the process of writing a book is that now having written a book and having uh, talked about the book quite a bit since it was published, there's sort of two waves of revelations within the process of writing a book. First, in order to understand what the book's about, you sort of have to write it. Like you pitch a book to a publisher, the publisher, you, you, you put together a proposal, the publisher says, okay, you're gonna write this book about these ideas. But for me, I realize what I'm writing about as I'm writing the book. I sometimes realize who the audience is as I'm writing the book. That's sort of the first wave of revelation. But then the book will come out and I'll talk about this finished product with dozens and dozens of people. And I'll realize over the process of talking about it over and over and over again, that what I thought the book was about isn't actually what the book was about. So for example, when I wrote Hitmakers, 
I thought that the biggest idea in Hitmakers was this concept I call the viral myth, which says, and this was written before the pandemic, but it basically says that, you know, we have been taught that ideas tend to spread like viruses. They with a with a R naught that's greater than one, one the idea from one person um, uh, in, infects two people from two to four, four to eight. And so the idea sort of blooms like a virus. But in fact, in cultural markets, broadcasting power, one to one million events are much more likely to create hits. And so when I came into this book, I was much more interested in, I guess what you could think of as like the distributional aspects of cultural products, how ideas go from one to one million and how gatekeepers control that process. But in the process of writing the book and especially in the process of talking about the book, I realized that it's the psychological elements of the book that were much more popular, much more picked up on. The concept of Maya, most advanced yet acceptable, which is very much related to the familiar surprise, which goes right to the first question that you asked about the book, which is this interplay or even this battle inside of our own minds between a preference for novelty and a need to discover new things. That's the idea from the book that everyone wanted to talk about. And so then I realized in sort of that second wave of revelation, oh, my book is actually about Maya. Like that's really what this book is about, is the, is the degree to which um, familiar surprises dictate cultural popularity. Um, and so I just think it's interesting from an audience standpoint that, yeah, you can, you can make a target, right? You can, you can set up the target on the wall as you're rearing back with that, um, with that dart. But the truth is that the target is changing as you're writing the book, and then it changes again when you talk about the book that you've written. So I think of these, of these books as being really dynamic products where you can have a hypothesis about who you're writing for, but sometimes you just don't really know who it's going to really hit. So one of the things I've wrestled with since I joined Twitter is how I'm going about putting my content out there and why. And we have some things in common, but our platforms are, we don't have much in common there. You have almost 180,000 followers. I think I have like four or something. I, I, I got to go check it. But um, so, you know, hundred, let's say 175,000 more people. So I have thought about this quite a bit. I know people that have bought Twitter followers. I know people that take courses on how to create content. If you're on Twitter a lot, you'll see these people that are doing threads all the time. And it's almost like how to get more followers. And mm -hmm. it's almost like I was talking to, about it with someone this morning. It's almost like a pyramid scheme. It's like, hey, follow this framework or this model and then you'll get whatever you'll get. And I don't know. I've really struggled with it because I'm like, I think I just like Twitter for what it is. And I'm mm -hmm. comfortable with, I get a lot of great content from it. I like to share. I think I've got a lot of amazing followers. And if you've got 150, then you think you don't have a lot compared to a million. And it's almost like this popularity contest that we all had in high school. It's like, what's enough? Mm -hmm. And, um, but I've often wondered, am I just being ignorant? Am I leaving an opportunity on the table by not understanding the machine and how it works and taking the content that I do have and creating a better distribution model, so to speak, um, and so that I can reach more people with hopefully what I have to say, which hopefully is something useful. As you hear me go back and forth and wrestle with it, what advice would you give to me as far as where I'm at? And, and if let's just assume I want to create a bigger platform, uh, how I should be thinking about it. Um, I'm also big on like being genuine and authentic and I don't want to hack stuff. And I'm not a fan of that. It just doesn't feel real to me. It doesn't feel aligned with who I am. So I, these are the, this is my brain. This has been my brain on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts about, about all that? 
Yeah, well, I, I don't, I'm not going to claim to have a perfect understanding of how to grow one's audience on Twitter because there are so many different communities in which in which one can grow, right? There's there's a self-help community, which frankly, I, I don't know that much about. There's a sports community, which again, I don't know much about. Uh, I know a lot about these sort of politics, media, tech, culture, nexus of journalism. Like that's the sandbox that I play in. And within that sandbox, to the extent that I have any wisdom to impart, the best I can tell you is that this is a sandbox that really likes novel ideas. It actually has a high taste for novelty, right? You mentioned earlier in a previous question that different audiences have different tastes for novelty. Um, Spotify, for example, has found that um, people older than 35 stop seeking out new music on the platform entirely, whereas people in their teens are actively seeking out new music. Their tastes are developing. So it's the same among Twitter groups. Some groups have very low taste for novelty. They just want to hear the same stuff over and over again. But my world, the journalism world, actually, I think has a high taste for novelty. And so there, what I think is relatively, relatively successful in terms of growing one's audience is uh, being a source of novel information about the world. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do that. You can try to break news, which is really, really hard. Um, you can try to come up with like the smartest take about everything, like, the smartest thing to say about like the Russian war in Ukraine, I guess, like I, however that would be determined, smartest thing ever said about Russia. What I find is, is, uh, is often very useful is being able to be a surrogate between the world of expertise and the world of ordinary readers. So for example, uh, there is a website called nber.org, this is National Bureau of Economic Research. And every week, every Monday, Tuesday, they come out with the new working papers of that week. So fresh economic research from some of the best economists in the country. Now, to my eye, most of the papers that come out every Monday are hideously, hideously boring. But some of them are unbelievably interesting. Sometimes they'll be this the report on, you know, what do people learn in college? Like, is college worth it? Is college a waste of time? Well, that's a topic that a lot of people have a lot of questions about. And so if you can translate their findings for a general audience, well, there's like a lot of appreciation for that. That's a great new morsel of novelty for the world of journalism that I described and, 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 and media readers. And so I try to do that. I try to be a surrogate often between sort of this world of expertise and the world of lay people understanding, talking to people, listening to people, reading people that are really, really smart about stuff and then finding sort of the simplest or most memorable way to honestly and with full nuance express their conclusions. And so that sort of surrogate role I find to be relatively popular for growing one's audience and sustaining it. And how much focus do you put on popularity? How much focus do you put on your own platform or ability to reach people and and how to take what maybe some of the lessons learned in the book and apply them to your content? I mean, at a deep level, I don't want to be driven by popularity because I don't want to be driven by extrinsic factors that I don't control. You know, I, I don't want to be a sailboat in a hurricane where my status and ego is just permanently up for an hourly vote. At the same time, there's no question that the feedback mechanisms of the internet make it very difficult to fully block yourself off, block your ego off from extrinsic reward. So I try to find a happy balance. I try to allow myself to be happy if I have a huge hit, if there's a podcast or an article or 
a magazine piece, or even a tweet that I write that lots of people seem to like, I want to allow myself to be happy about the fact that, that the positive feedback is, is really, really strong. But at the same time, I think it's, I think it's important for individuals that are media makers or influencers or whatever, putting themselves out there into the world of high frequency feedback, you have to find some way to set a high floor of ego, to not allow your emotions to fall below a certain high floor, because otherwise you are truly lost. You are, you've truly outsourced your sense of worth to a bunch of strangers that you will never meet. And that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I try to allow the wins to be banked while also setting that high floor. It reminds me of a lot of athletes. It's like, no, your work matters and have perspective on your work, right? Like mm. want to win the game, of course, like, and then celebrate the win and understand that if you lose, you're not a loser. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, like, but those lines are hard for people because sometimes they get all in on one, like, you know, their identity is attached to the winning and losing. Um, and, and they, they start to really believe that and it helps them perform better sometimes, but it's a slippery slope because then they're relying on, as you sort of said, these external rewards to feel good about themselves that it can be, it can be problematic as well. Well, I do think that, you know, my life is, is nothing like a professional athlete's life, except that, at a level that is, or at a, a scale that is smaller than a typical professional athlete, um, a lot of my work lives in the public eye. Judgment. Right? I don't and, and, and within public judgment, right? I don't have 18 million people watching me on Sunday Night Football, but I'll sometimes have hundreds of thousands of people reading an article that I write, or you know, tens of thousands of people listening to a podcast that I record, and I get a lot of feedback. And of course, not all of it's going to be positive. And of course, like every other person, the negative stuff, dose for dose, weighs much more heavily than the positive stuff, right? Like, you know, you're, you're a media maker, you produce something, you get four pieces of positive feedback, you get one piece of negative feedback, what sticks with you over dinner, <laughs> you know? Of course, it's a negative feedback. You're not focusing on like thing three that someone said that was mildly positive. Like, it's the negative thing that just sticks in your craw. And it's so fascinating to me that like, you know, I, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do and, and I know how, how, how privileged I am. Um, but it is remarkable how hard it is to shake the, the, the fact that um, the judgment of crowds can really pull us down. Um, you know, I, I think about this when I, when I read some articles about how, how sensitive athletes are um, to negative things that they read online. And it's remarkable because on the one hand, of course, they're sensitive to it. I would be. Um, but on the other hand, you, you, you think to yourself, you are one of the, maybe the 0. at the 0.001 percentile of talent in your category. 99.999% of the people that do what you do wish they could be in your shoes, but rather than have their mind, rather than have the mind of gratitude and say, wow, I made it. I am the, the fulfillment of, the, of almost everybody's like dreams. You focus on, well, this stranger that I'll never meet, and whose name I won't remember in two weeks, said something really, really shitty about me. That's, that, that's humanity. I mean, that's just who we are. But it's so interesting to think that it's fractal. You can't get out of it. Whether you're at the 0.01% or the 1% or the 10% or the bottom 10%, to a certain extent, we all have this extraordinary sensitivity to the judgment of strangers. And that's why I just think it's really important for, for myself to like just set that high floor of ego and remind yourself, like, 
you don't know these people, you'll never meet these people, and uh, you can't allow yourself to fall below that threshold. Yeah, I love John Wooden who said, you know, focus on character, not reputation. Character is who you are. Reputation is how others perceive you. Mm-hmm. And the locus of control on on how others perceive you is is just very, very low. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also am thinking about when you said four to one, I thought about like Barbara Fredrickson talked about, you know, four positive things for one negative thing to be more successful. The research has been questioned uh, a mm-hmm. bit, but that concept of internal dialogue as well. Um, I think we before we started recording, you mentioned Ethan Cross, who talks about the self-talk that we have in our in our mind. And I'm even thinking about there was something recently that I did and I was like, man, like I wish I had done that differently. And the self-talk that I have with myself and being my own critic compared to when I'm also being my own cheerleader and to zoom out a little bit, I think about if I'm never critiquing myself or I'm not ever hurt by anyone critiquing me, I'd probably be a sociopath. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think I want to n- be completely numb to how it's being received, uh, both positive and negative. Um, and so how, like, to me, that's a big piece. Like I have to care about what people think about me, but not let them have ownership over how I think about myself. And I have a great story here. So um, when I was just getting started in, in journalism, there was a, um, there was a famous um, op-ed columnist who I really, really disliked. I just thought they were way over the hill. Um, and unfortunately, I can't say their name because I think they still have the same job. And um, a friend of mine was, uh, was, their, was their assistant and uh, said that this person um, was once asked about how they feel reading negative, feed, negative feedback via email or negative comments under their articles in this very august newspaper that they wrote for. And this person said, I no longer read the feedback. And I was like, that is why you suck. That's why you, your greatness, your sensitivity to learning a little bit more about your craft is what got you to this level. But then your certainty that you didn't need to hear any more feedback once you attained that level of success is why you suck now. And since then, I've always wondered about this concept of like skin thickness, that on the one hand, we're constantly told, you know, don't be too thin skinned. Don't allow other people's judgment to invade your sense of self. But at the same time, I think it's pretty obvious, and you hinted to this, and the person who I unfortunately can't name um, uh, is representative of this idea. There's such thing as too thick skin, right? There's this idea that you, you, you refuse to hear anybody's feedback. You reject anything that possibly tells you to change course. So what I think about all the time is how to maintain like ideal thin skin thickness. Like how do I maintain an openness to negative feedback so that I can learn from it while also... Um, allowing the positive feedback to stick with me just a little bit longer. And one little trick that I do sometimes is if I read a comment on Twitter or on Reddit about my work, it makes me really, really sad. Um, I'll try to, and this is sort of an Ethan Cross um, spiel here, but I'll try to like see that sadness as the signal that it is. Okay, well, you're sad about this thing that someone said, and maybe they're full of shit. Maybe they're totally wrong. But perhaps even though their comment was rude and it's just making you feel miserable, there's like a kernel of truth in it. There's this little kernel of accurate negative feedback that you can learn from. And after the sadness washes away with time, you can see that kernel of an idea more clearly and you can learn from it. And so I I think that, that trying to fight through the negative emotional reaction that 
is that inevitably comes to you when you read negative feedback or, or, or deal with negative feedback. Fight through that emotion, negative emotional reaction and then see the feedback for what it is. I think that's, that's still really, really important. Because um, if you shut that off, then you become too, too thick-skinned to learn from anything. Talk to my clients about this all the time. And by no means have I mastered it. Uh, I, from a young, young age, was really bad at, at taking feedback, <laughs> partially because my dad was a journalist and you know, I'd give him a paper and he'd redline the whole thing. And by the time I got to high school, I was like, I'm just not giving him anything because I don't want the red lines. And I love my dad, but it was not a good uh, pathway for me to get good grades in school. Mm -hmm. It's like, no one's looking at it. This is Brian's brilliance on display. I'm not even going to edit it myself, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't recommend that. But I've, as an adult, I've thought more about the idea of constructive criticism. And I think anytime you put criticism onto something, we immediately become defensive. I know I do. Even if it's constructive, and I've got air quotes for constructive. So for my clients, we often say, what if we just looked at it all as feedback? Don't even mm -hmm. think of it as constructive criticism. They're giving you feedback. Sometimes the feedback's positive. Sometimes the feedback's negative. And the imagery that we often use is a Brita. And you know, you fill the water, you fill your Brita pitcher with water. Um, then the water comes out and it's clean. You hopefully get a nice glass of water. Then if you look in the filter, there are these little black specks that came from the water. Mm, mm. You use that filter to capture, capture the black specks, but get that kernel of truth, so to speak, and then drink the water. And so we still want to have a filter. We need to know who's giving us the feedback. Um, are they someone who we value their opinion of that we respect? Uh, what does the content actually say? How do we remove some of the emotion? that we have from it? How do we manage ourselves in those situations where we start to become defensive? Can we notice that? Can we create a relationship with our own emotions? And from there, can we just look at it all as feedback? And yeah. for me, like I have to qualify who this person is. I have to think about, all right, what's their intention? And then from there, I can start to try to figure out. And by the way, some of the feedback sucks. It's not even useful. So some of it, we can just pour out and pour down the drain, like, go ahead. That's bad feedback, but we have to be open to it, to your, to your point. If we want to grow, if we want to get better and improve, uh, feedback is, is just essential. I think it's also important. You know, I, I'm, I, I love that. Um, I, I love, you know, trying to see criticism for the sort of valueless feedback that it can be. You don't have to attach a positive or negative value to it. You can just say, Oh, that's another, that's a, that's another um, uh, nice bit of course correction. I sometimes try to see a, a lot of psychological principles through the lens of time. For whatever reason, I'm very interested in the degree to which analyzing our mindsets and our psychology through a temporal perspective can help us to see it more clearly. So for example, when I get a really negative piece of feedback, when someone says, you know, that last, that last podcast you did was terrible. Derek's podcast is bad now. Or they say, you know, that, that the writing that you've done in the last month is really crappy. I think in previous years, and still to a certain extent, I would take that pretty catastrophically because I would think to myself, wow, I'm bad. My most recent work is bad. And I am my most recent work. That is true to the extent that you think your identity and the and your, 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 your work stops now, right? But if you think that you are constantly a work in progress and the thing you're trying to maximize is the quality of your work over the next year or over the next decade, 
then the presence of feedback now is fantastic because it increases the odds that over the next year or decade, you're going to improve. It's kind of like in a football game, if you throw an interception in a tie game with two minutes left in the clock, that is catastrophic. You have severely ruined your team's chance at winning the game. But if Joe Burrow throws that same interception on that same route with that same misread of the defense with 14 minutes left in the first quarter, it does not matter. It truly doesn't matter. In fact, it might even be good because he might learn about sort of defensive schemes that allow him over the rest of the first, second, third quarter to be absolutely brilliant and just masterfully dissect the defense for six touchdowns over the remainder of the game. So same, same phenomenon, an interception on a misread. If you think about it as a fourth quarter event, it really is catastrophic. If you think about it as a first quarter event and say, this game is still a work in progress, it's not catastrophic at all. You walk back to the sideline, whoops, I still get 60 plays left this game. There's a lot of game left to play. And I think it's really important to, like, to go back to time. Remember, the most recent criticism of my most recent work doesn't need to be my working identity. It can be a course correction that makes my future work identity more successful. Yeah, and I think when we place our self-esteem on what has happened right now, that's going to be a roller coaster of a ride. But if we believe in ourselves and our capacity to do hard things or to overcome or to stay curious or to learn or whatever those things might be, we ground ourselves in that being our identity. That is who I am. It opens us up for more possibility possibility to handle different things. When you think of timing and when you mentioned timing, I think of Dan Pink's book, When, which looked at like time of day and when we should do certain things. For my book, I almost called my book When, and then Dan Pink came out with his book. I'm like, all right, I'll probably come up with a different title because my book was all about how you need to be different in preparation than you do in performance. Hmm. So if you take what you're saying about Joe Burrow, there's a time to be humble and there's a time to be arrogant. There's a time to be fearful. There's a time to be fearless. There's a time to be selfish. There's a time to be selfless. And I think that doesn't get talked about enough in psychology is that there are times where we need to tap into a different side of ourselves based on the situation or the circumstance or the environment. So when you're writing, I would imagine you're not overly concerned about what someone's going to write about in the feedback section uh, on the Atlantic. Like in that moment, you have to own the material. You have to sort of the old adage, write drunk, edit sober. You have mm -hmm. to let go and just get stuff on paper. But then once it's published, there are lessons to learn from the feedback. And so it's a different mindset that you need to switch into or shift into. And that to me is so, so critical for performers. Anyone that's being judged, like you mentioned earlier, there is value in that judgment. Uh, so when we say just don't be judgmental, it's like, okay, that's nice, but that's not reality. It's not how humans work. We judge all the time. And so I, I think about that a lot. Going back to you, you write, you speak, you interview. Is there a uh, medium where you feel most alive? The truth is, uh, even though it's a minority of my working life, I'd say I probably feel most alive giving talks. I grew up as an actor before I was a writer. I acted in a lot of plays in Washington, D.C. I was at the Folger Shakespeare Theater for a few plays. I was at the Shakespeare Theater for a few plays and at a arena stage and Forge Theater um, for some plays as well. And I loved acting. I loved it as much as I loved anything. Um, and man, talk about positive audience feedback. I mean, there's not a lot of jobs where you go to work, you go to the office, you do your job, and then you walk to the front of the office and people stand up and clap at you. 
Like if your love language is positive affirmation, like goodness gracious, theater is a really fantastic, um, is a fantastic job in that respect. And I, to this day, feel really comfortable speaking in front of crowds. There's a way in which I feel calmer speaking in front of crowds than I do interviewing one individual. There's something about crowds that, are, that is anonymizing to me. If you can't focus on one individual, then it's, it's a mass of individuals. You're performing almost in front of this entity that is part mass, part mirror, right? It, it, I, I feel very in control of myself and very comfortably uh, self-assured and self-aware when I'm on a stage. Uh, and I guess the, the phenomenology is, uh, of it is kind of hard to describe, but, but that's really what it is. I, I feel very in control when I'm on a stage. And so I love having written something or talked about something on my podcast, feel, feel, starting to feel confident about this, this material, starting to feel very passionate about this material, and then being invited to go in front of a crowd and present on it, get up on a stage, make some jokes, make some pronouncements, give a 30 minute talk, and then get feedback for 15 minutes. Have people stand up in the audience and throw me questions and essentially have to do a little bit of improv, uh, not knowing what the questions are and having to answer them. I love all of that. I love it so much. And I think that's that might be the part of the job that in the moment, is it makes me feel closest to true flow. Um, I love writing and I love podcasting, but damn, that's hard work. And in a way, I guess I could think of writing and podcasting is like, that's like the planting season. And that's me trying to figure out what ideas are going to stick with audiences. Like, do people want to hear about supply chains? Do they want to hear about the future of material abundance? Do they want to hear about the psychology of remote work? And then I realized, okay, here's what people want to hear about. And then when I, when I go to speak about it in front of an audience, that's the harvesting season. I already know what I've planted. I already have my fruit, my corn. This is just pure harvesting. And I honestly, I, I love that aspect of my work. Who introduced you to theater? Um, when I always loved performing. I always loved like singing around the house and putting on weird voices. And in fourth grade, my fourth grade teacher encouraged me to audition for some shows in Washington, DC. I think before that I hadn't really considered theater to be like, the, the center point of my life. But then in fourth grade, I started auditioning for, for shows and auditioned for, for some plays in the DC area and was cast in a few of them. And then for the next five, seven years, it was just an enormous part of my life, acting professionally in DC, being in a ton of plays in high school, I went to Northwestern to major in journalism because my dad, I think, correctly observed that it'd be easier to get a job as a journalist than as an actor. But when I was at Northwestern, I was a really shitty journalism major. I did very little writing. I just wanted to be in plays and sing. So I spent most of my life before The Atlantic hired me acting and singing. And maybe my last answer to your previous question, you know, what is it that makes you happiest is this idea of, well, I found this way to braid these two deep interests of mine, being on a stage while also committing acts of journalism. Um, and that's what, what talks are. If you could snap your fingers tomorrow and I'd say, hey, you're, you're in, like Dear Evan Hansen, I just saw at the Kennedy Center. Incredible. Uh, you're in Dear Evan Hansen and you're touring. Like if you, if you had the opportunity to do that tomorrow, is, is that what you would choose? No. I think that there's two things that I learned about myself in, in 
college doing a, mostly acting a little bit of journalism. Number one, if you're a successful actor, you do the same play over and over and over and over again. Because if you're a successful actor, that means that your show is doing well. So maybe the run is extended. Now, it's not true that actors are just automatons who do the exact same thing every night. It's live theater, it's dynamic. You figure out different wrinkles in scenes, different ways of modulating tone, different ways of playing off of people. So the, the show is different every night and it has to be, otherwise it, it's dead. But I love the novelty that comes with writing. With writing, I can control exactly how long each show lasts, so to speak. If I wanna keep writing about remote work, I'll just keep writing about remote work. But if what I really want to write about is the future of American energy policy, I can fire myself from one play, so to speak, and cast myself in another play, so to speak, the play of you know, American you know, energy independence, and then just do that show for as long as I want to. And so the amount of control that I have over my career and the, my ability to lily hop between subjects and pursue that novelty I think makes journalism a better career for my adult self, even though I'm very, very happy with all the time that I spent singing and acting as a kid. Yeah. I think about the child version of me wanted to be a professional basketball player and you've <laughs> met, you've met me and knew <laughs> I, I level wise that that wasn't going to work out for me. And it probably wasn't going to work out for you if that was your dreams, but what was it like, what was it like transitioning from wanting to be a basketball player? to recognizing that you would not be a professional basketball player? Like, what was that grieving process like? Oh, I mean, my identity got completely shaken in high school, right? So when I hear athletes talk about retiring from professional ball or college athletics or whatever it is, I, I kind of get it. It's not quite as deep uh, of an identity. And I think dealing with something at 15 is different than 21 or 31 or 41. But yeah, I, I was lost in high school because I'd always identified as an athlete and I was just really, really small and scrawny and wasn't fast enough or mm -hmm. athletic enough to make up for it. And basketball was my sport of choice. Interestingly, the, interestingly enough, when I was in sixth grade, I remember being in the play uh, in our school and I was really good. <laughs> um, and I had friends who were really into theater. I'm sure you even probably know some of my friends because my area, I mean, theater was like the jocks were in in our musicals and our plays and the cool kids. And, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, looking back, I don't have any regrets on the sports side, but yeah, I wished I had pursued, um, acting actually theater. Like I loved being on a stage. I would, you mentioned sort of how these other parts of your life are hard. It sounds like theater was more easy for you to grab a hold of, but even as I break it down, I, what you said really resonated with me. I'm around a lot of sports people all the time and I see the monotony and the repetition that's required to be elite or to be an expert, so to speak, uh, in sports, even at a coaching level, which is more complex, they still need to drill and train. And, um, I, I'm not all that interested. I'm around the best, some of the best sports coaches in the world. And I get bored in the gym. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I, I sit in a basketball gym watching elite, basketball players or on a football field. I'm like, this is really cool. 12 year old version of me thinks you're the man, but yeah, I've liked mixing and matching. And, you know, it was interesting. I got to a place in sports that was once again, the younger version of me would be like, dude, you're working with these teams. 
And then I was like, ah, I think I kind of been interested in business because there's so much complexity in the leaders. And for now, I like coaching them one-on-one. So it's just interesting how things evolve and they change um, for you as you keep evolving as well. But yeah, my identity was definitely uh, shaken. And it affected me in high school. And I think I had another moment when I graduated from college and I was lost. But I think what happens when you're lost is you can find yourself. And so mm-hmm. for me, those times were massive growth opportunities to learn more about myself. And and fortunately today I do something that I do enjoy. And to your point, if I want to pivot it a little bit or adjust it or change the sales, I can do whatever the heck I want. So that autonomy piece is a really big deal. I want to talk to you about something before we close, which is you mentioned your dad, you know, sort of encouraging you to go to Northwestern. You also mentioned your dad when we got together, when I had a bar set up with wine and whiskey. Um, It sounds like your dad had expertise. He had a craft. He had a role. Um, Can you talk about his impact on you and your mom's impact? Um, And I want to just talk about them for a little bit as well. Sure. Happy to. So my mom and dad uh, both passed away. They passed away when I was um, in 2013 and 2016. And uh, both of of cancers, of two different cancers. And we had an incredible relationship. The relationship with my parents was wonderful and honestly still is wonderful. It hasn't ended. Uh, I, you know, I talk to them in my head all the time. They're a very present force for me. Uh, my dad was a lawyer in Washington, D.C., Robert Thompson, uh, but he was also a wine critic for the Washington Post in the 1980s. He was one of the first journalists to go to the White House wine cellar and wrote this article about the Reagan wine cellar in um, the early 1980s that was a huge hit, as I understand it. And I grew up loving wine. I still love wine. I still collect wine. That's certainly a way in which my dad's legacy lives on in my household. My wife and I drink wine all the time, um, and I, I think of them lots you know as as a journalist who collects wine i very much think my dad would be incredibly proud of of the life that i'm living in it and it makes me happy to to imagine that um but he was one of these he was very much a creature of dc he loved politics he liked policy he liked the sunday morning talk shows he liked reading the newspaper and fighting over op-eds and absolutely like planted the seed of a love of journalism, a respect for journalism, a respect for ideas, and a belief that they make a difference, that they can change the world. Um, my mom was also another huge influence, just like best person I've ever known, um, incredibly kind, incredibly even keeled. And while my dad was a bit of a hothead, one thing I definitely had taken from my mom is that in, in ways that I hope served me well in, in most categories, um, I, I try to stay as, as emotionally even keeled as possible. I try not to get too high or too low. Good feedback, bad feedback. Life is terrible. Life is great. Um, I try to stay within sort of a narrow temperature band. And that's a lesson that she absolutely taught me, the benefit of sort of you know, staying somewhere in the, in the 72 degrees um, uh, median of emotions. And so, uh, yeah, they, their, their legacies absolutely live on pretty deeply. How has their death, being that they're relatively young, impacted how you live? You know, that's a great question. I'm not entirely sure that in at least a purposeful way, it does affect the way that I live outside of one category. uh, My wife and I have a phrase called drink the wine and drink the wine is our way of recognizing that life is unpredictable and you never, ever know what's going to happen. And sometimes 
It'll be a Tuesday night. Nothing special has happened that day. Nothing special is happening that night. And you really, really want just a great bottle of wine. For whatever reason, you are hankering to just celebrate nothing by opening up a really fancy bottle of wine. And some of our wine is kind of fancy. And I think in, you know, in the past, there's a certain part of my psychology or philosophy of life that says, don't do that. Savor the expensive stuff. Keep, you know, uh, uh, keep a lid on it until some future event. Save for the future. And the longer I live, and I think this is definitely an idea that's affected by the fact that I had these sort of earlier tragedies in my life, I realized like, man, those Tuesday nights are so special. Those nights where you feel that special, ineffable, wow, aren't things wonderful? Isn't life wonderful? Is it, don't we just have this sort of bubble of like crystalline beauty in our life that we want to celebrate for no reason other than the recognition of that crystalline beauty? Yeah, screw it. Let's open the wine. And like drink the wine is like our um, seize the day uh, uh, phrase. Unfortunately, we don't have the Latin interpretation um, that, would, that would be the equivalent of carpe diem. Um, but that's definitely a way I think in which you know, dealing with early tragedy has, has affected my life. It's just recognizing that um, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how long you're around. You have a greater appreciation for the here and now and the specialness of every moment and every year and day. Um, and while, of course, it's prudent to save toward the future and be responsible um, and plan for you know, the decades to come, you don't want to overlook the fact that um, no moment will be as, as alive as the one you're in right now. So savor it. I think Drink the Wine could be a book in the future. Uh, maybe you'll <laughs> do it with your wife. But I know you're collaborating with, with someone else on, on another book. So can you just give us a glimpse into what you're working on, what you're excited about? Uh, and I think it's about progress. So I'm curious to learn more. That's right. Yeah. So I'm working on a book with Ezra Klein, the New York Times, about progress. The book um, is in large part about the fact that this country and this world faces all sorts of problems, material and philosophical, that seem to come from scarcity. We don't have enough houses. We don't have enough healthcare. We don't have enough clean energy. We, in, in a way, you know, don't have enough generosity. And this book is about how to fix our problems of material and philosophical scarcity, um, which I think are the biggest problems in America and the biggest problems in the world. Um, so it's an ambitious book about how to solve some very, very thorny problems that's going to combine history and policy and politics and even psychology. Um, but I'm really, really excited to work on it. And I just think that we need a, a clearer way of thinking about how to make the world a better place. We need a clearer theory of progress. And hopefully this book tries to build that, that superior philosophy of the future. Why write a book with someone else as opposed to writing another one on your own? Well, the truth is that I did start to write this one on my own. I had a, um, I had a book leave last year for about two months. And it was the most miserable working two months of my professional life. I just wasn't getting purchased in this idea. Um, I wasn't seeing the field clearly. Um, and I came back from my book leave and started writing about uh, America in 2021 through these ideas that I picked up in my progress research. And there was an incredible response to it. So book number one was about sort of the history of progress. It was about lessons from like the 16 and 1700s. But book number two is going to be fully about the 21st century, about how to fix problems that are right here and right now. And I think there was something about languishing in 
all these ideas from the last 400 years that may be just a little bit smarter about the, about the near future. And right as I was making that turn from fixating on the history of progress to being interested in the future of progress, um, Ezra reached out and said, you know, I've been reading your articles and reflecting on my articles, and it looks like we're kind of writing the exact same book at the same time. Uh, we could race each other to the end, or we could just team up and write the same book together. Um, and I thought the, the the latter sounded much more amenable, so we decided to write it together. How's that been so far? It's been great. It's been it's been really great. You know, we uh, wrote the proposal together. We started to write um, some chapters of the book together. Uh, the book's not, probably not going to come out until early 2024. But it's been fantastic. I think we, um, you know, I, I don't know much how about how much you and, and your listeners are, are deeply familiar with it, with Ezra's work, although he's just incredibly widely read and so unbelievably smart. It's been it's been useful to see how we think very similarly about a lot of things, but we also have very different approaches to certain things, and that combination of similarity and difference, I think, has served us well so far. In that. We learn from each other. It's not like talking to your face in the mirror, but it's also um, it's a, it's a it's a relationship of finished sentences rather than interruptions. Um, it feels very generative. So I'm optimistic at the moment. There's a theme as we start to close. There's a theme that I've heard throughout, which is do we go go toward relationships, situations, experiences, work that's easy, or do we go toward work that's hard? And for me, I said this taking golf lessons, which I really <laughs> need. Um, and I said this to my instructor the other day, I'm like, look, cause he was trying to show me the angles and the degrees and trying to teach me how to golf swing. So I could really understand like the physics of a golf swing. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him in two sessions ago, two lessons ago. I said, so don't want like, look, I sucked at math and science. Maybe at 38, I'm going to all of a sudden become really good at it and we're going to learn together. But I'm seeing you once a week and mm -hmm. I'm hoping to play golf maybe once a week, maybe twice a week if I'm lucky. Can you just show me what the hell I should be doing? And can you give me a few tips that I can then translate over? Let's go. I go. He goes, well, I want you to be able to understand it so that you can make adjustments on your own in the future. Mm -hmm. I go, I understand all that. But I'm telling you, I'm not learning this way. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, when was the last time you learned something? I go, well... <laughs> I had someone on my podcast this morning that I got to learn from. I learn things all the time. Like, well, how do you learn? I go, I ask people questions and they give me answers and then I understand it. Um, and back to you, <laughs> it's just like top of mind, like hard or easy. Like, how do you think about that? Do you spend more time on those hard things to really try to understand it? Or do you go toward things that maybe you have more gifts in and that you're, it comes more naturally to you and that are easier for you to do. How do you think about that as you organize your philosophy on, on life or even uh, in work? It's a great question. I, and there's so many different ways to answer it. One way to answer it is that I don't think about my work explicitly on a hard, easy spectrum. I think about the topics that I write about on an interestingness spectrum. There are some times where I just naturally find myself powerfully motivated by a mystery in the news. Why are things like that? Why are we like that? Why is my life or my brain the way that it is? And I try to be very sensitive to that inner voice that is telling me, ooh, this is a mystery. You don't understand this. This is interesting. And so it's really more about 
known versus unknown, which to a certain extent might be a proxy for easy versus hard. Because if you know something, then it's easy. And if it's a mystery to you, then it's harder to figure out. So to that extent, I definitely try to run toward the thorniest problems of the news, the most interesting and, and, and hard to answer um, uh, unknowns in, in the news cycle and about the world. And that's, that's, an, that's an animated philosophy of, of my life. I also think though that like, I try, I try to be across so many different ideas that it's important for me to like make some parts of my life really, really easy so that I have a lot of energy to approach the hard stuff. So for example, I eat the same breakfast every day. I make the same coffee every day with the same coffee routine. I honestly, and some people are absolutely horrified by this. I often eat the same lunch every day. Like I routinize so much of my life and it's not because I'm trying to become like some kind of robot. It's just that I'm inside of my head talking to myself, asking myself questions all the time. And it's just nice to have a lot of these things on autopilot. And so um, I try to, I try to, I guess you could say in certain parts of my life, sort of minimize new experiences. I also, I watch a lot of the same television shows over and over again. Like when I fall asleep, I don't like discovering new shows. I like rewatching Succession and Veep just over and over and over again. And so there's a lot of my life that's just reconsumption, just familiarity. And at least I rationalize that to myself by saying I need to leave a certain, um, a certain amount of energy in my life to pursue fully the discovery of new ideas. Yeah, to capture all that, it sounds like you leverage routine, familiarity, so you don't have to waste brain power on, on you know, there's the old ego depletion, which is the idea that, you know, wear the same shirt every day, see a lot of tech guys do it, so they don't have to spend energy on choosing that, they can leave their decision making to the things that are important to them. But it comes back to what we started with was curiosity of things, mm -hmm. of people versus mm -hmm. curiosity of people of people. And so what that golf instructor is not really understands, like, I know I'm curious about people of people, but the, the, the shapes and the angles, you're, you're probably, you're going to lose me. My brain gets, gets, get, gets scattered and scrambled when I'm in that space. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like, Hey, I want to have as much energy for curiosity of things and interest of things to go explore it and to go find them and discover them. And that's how I want to spend a lot of my day on that. And then by the way, at the end of the day, I also want to celebrate uh, by drinking the wine. And I also want to have time to, to be and to appreciate what we had. So there's a framework there that I actually found pretty useful, which is it can be a little bit of everything, right? Like make certain things easy so that you don't have to worry about them. You can make those routine so that you can go explore and find out some new things that might be a little more difficult and challenging. And you might have to sift in an economic research uh, idea that might not seem interesting on the surface, but maybe mm -hmm. I, I double click on it and I find something, I discover something. And so I find that integration that, that you're using, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally to be really interesting, just sitting here on the other end of the mic. Uh, Derek, we could talk all day. I promised you when we all got together that we'd get everyone back together for a glass of wine or whiskey or whatever it is. We will still do that. Um, so I look forward to breaking bread with you. Uh, I think I'll choose dinner over lunch. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't, you, don't want, you don't want my fried egg and, and uh, uh, high protein toast combo. Trust me. It's, it's interesting you say that though. I feel pretty similar to you on that. I, I started doing intermittent fasting. So I typically don't eat breakfast 
I could mm. though, if I was going to, it'd be the same thing. And I'd be comfortable with that. And even for lunch, it's like, give me a healthy salad or, or something that's really healthy. But when it comes to dinner, I usually then want to mix it up a little bit and do something else. Um, but I find like certain things help fuel me through the day. And I, some things really take, take me away from feeling energized in the day and food definitely plays a role. Um, but Derek, I know you're active on social media. Where can people find you there? And then uh, obviously Derek writes for the Atlantic. His articles are incredible. And when he says wide ranging, he's got, you know, stuff on quiet quitting he's got stuff on sports. He's got stuff on technology. Um, he's hit on a lot of the different places he plays the podcast on the ringer, which is kind of interesting and unique in its own right, because the ringer does sports. But if you go and listen to Derek's podcast episode, surely there are things on uh, on sports, there's a great conversation with him and Ryan Rosillo on the greatest statistical um, success that any achievement, yeah, achievement. Right, yeah. And we're watching Aaron Judge right now, so it's kind of relevant right. for people if they're curious about what Derek thinks about Aaron Judge. Uh, you can listen to that podcast. You could probably come up with a pretty good, pretty good idea, even though he's a Yankee fan, which we didn't get into in this conversation, <laughs> which is weird because I grew up in Maryland and grew up on the Orioles, and now I'm a Nats I know, fan. I know, I know. And I'm going to the Nats game tonight. People in our area, baseball, the relationship with baseball is complicated. But uh, where can they find all your stuff? Where can they get the book? That's us sure. time to just share. Sure. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at DK Thump. Read me at the Atlantic. Listen to me. Plain English with Derek Thompson with the Ringer Podcast Network, Plain English. And uh, yeah, the book is, first book is Hitmakers. Second book is To Be Named with Ezra. And uh, yeah, that's everything. Derek, great to chat with you. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Appreciate you. Talk soon. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. My wife and I have a phrase called drink the wine. And drink the wine is our way of recognizing that life is unpredictable and you never, ever know what's going to happen. And sometimes it'll be a Tuesday night, nothing special has happened that day. Nothing special is happening that night. And you really, really want just a great bottle of wine. For whatever reason, you are hankering to just celebrate nothing by opening up a really fancy bottle of wine. And some of our wine is kind of fancy. And I think in, you know, in the past, there's a certain part of my psychology or philosophy of life that says, don't do that. Savor the expensive stuff. Keep you know, uh, uh, keep a lid on it until some future event, save for the future. And the longer I live, and I think this is definitely an idea that's affected by the fact that I had these sort of earlier tragedies in my life, I realized like, man, those Tuesday nights are so special.